This morning we get the, uh, the special joy and privilege to have a guest speaker with us, but he's not a guest. Um, Dr. David Geierson started at, uh, as the headmaster at Maranatha High School in May of this year. And so he's, uh, he's new to Maranatha as of that date and started attending here um, among us since then. And so he's part of our family um, and we're blessed to, to have you, Dr. Garson. It's great to even meet you this morning as uh, me and my wife both graduated from Maranatha. And so uh, we're excited about uh, what God is doing at that school. Um, and to have you part of our family is, is really just such a privilege. Um, Dr. Garson and, and Pastor Waybright go way back as, uh, as kind of presidents of, of schools that um, it was Asbury and Regent and Taylor that, that um, Dr. Gratson was president in different years. So um, we're, we're glad to have him. We're going to prepare to hear from God's word. And so let's stand together as I read Psalm 27, our passage this morning. Let's stand as this is the word of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At His sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters here at Lake Avenue. You can do better than that. Good morning, Lake Avenue. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a privilege. It is for Nancy and me to kind of officially become part of the Lake Avenue family. We know this area quite well. We've been uh, coming to the Burbank and Pasadena area for uh, over a decade now. 
And I've done two sabbaticals at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, and we've kept an apartment uh, in Burbank for the last uh, 10 years, uh, primarily because we have a daughter and two grandchildren here. Once you have grandchildren, it changes your life dramatically, doesn't it? And uh, so it's our privilege to now make uh, uh, Lake Avenue our home, our, our spiritual home, uh, Greg and Chris have been long-term friends, as was shared with you. We started out our presidential careers together uh, many moons ago and uh, wept together, rejoiced together, and saw God do miracles together. And we're so privileged to be here watching God work through Greg and Chris's ministry among you as we begin to anticipate what God is up to at Lake Avenue Church on behalf of the kingdom. Would you agree with me in this prayer? Please pray with me. Father, may the words of these lips... And then, Father, the meditations of our hearts together be led by you, empowered by you. May they be acceptable as we allow those words and the prompting of your Spirit to work through us to accomplish your purposes because we believe that this church and we as the church at Lake Avenue have been called to your kingdom for just such times as these. And all of God's people said, Amen. I've been uh, really uh, blessed by Greg's ministry out of the Word. He has such a powerful understanding of the Word of God and anchors his own teaching and ministry to that on a day-by-day basis. And the thing that has been so convicting on me as I've listened to him work us through the book of Acts as part of his setting the stage for what he believes, and I think the church leadership also believe, is an opportunity to have a fresh breakthrough in terms of Lake Avenue's ministry in this place. Not just to Pasadena, not just to the Valley, not just to the greater Los Angeles area, but it's quite possible that as we get a hold of what God wants us to get a hold of together, that we could see the very ministry of Lake Avenue reach the ends of the world from here. Wouldn't that be something? To have us as a church see God increase and multiply our sense of fulfillment, our responsibility and calling to fulfill the Great Commission. You know, Jesus only asked us to do one thing, uh, and it's taken us 2,000 years, and we still haven't done it. If I had students at Maranatha High School in my classes, it took them 2,000 years to get it, I'd be concerned about them. How about you? And so Jesus continues to call us in every generation to just one ultimate task, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel that gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, and that we're to do it to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And the thing that thrills us about our involvement here at Lake is to see many tongues, tribes, and nations represented. So we're rehearsing the Great Commission, and we're rehearsing ultimately for that great ingathering, that time when Jesus returns and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as I've been thinking about this call that, uh, that Greg has been placing on our hearts and minds in terms of this breakthrough, and listening to how the disciples responded, it's an amazing thing. It seems like after Pentecost, the disciples have an automatic yes. It's not yes but, or yes if, or yes when. Matter of fact, earlier in the New Testament, you know, in the Gospels, Jesus was dealing with people who, when he called to follow him, would say, well, yes, but, or yes, when I've taken care of business, or yes, when I've 
buried my father. There were all these kinds of excuses, kind of reminiscent of what happened to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. After 40 years in Pharaoh's court and then 40 years in the desert, struggling with the fact that the people of God who he was identified with were now still in captivity, God appears to him and says, I've seen the afflictions of my people, and I've heard their cries by reason of their cruel taskmasters, and I am come down to deliver them. Now, at that moment, I grew up in, a, in kind of a holiness church uh, in terms of the people that took me in off the streets, and I'll share more about that in just a moment or two. But uh, they, these were serious Christians. These were hallelujah Christians. Whenever you heard the Word of God declared, they would jump up and shout. Some of them would wave their hankies. I mean, I grew up in that kind of an environment. Uh, we asked them, though, that they only wave clean hankies, please, just, just clean hankies. And they got very exuberant. And I'm sure that's what happened to Moses. When he heard that, that God had seen the afflictions, had heard the cries, and was coming down to deliver them, I'm sure he shouted, Hallelujah! Way to go, God! Go get them! But God hadn't finished yet. He says, and I'm sending you. <laughs> Say what? I'm sending you to set my people free. And then we get a chapter and a half in the book of Exodus of, uh, yes, but, or yes, maybe, or yes, when, or yes, if. And finally, God says, I'm going to send you, but because you won't take on the whole job, I'm going to send you in the company of some others who are committed to this task as well. You don't see that in the book of Acts. The interesting thing is that after Pentecost, there is this immediate response of yes. They're hiding in the upper room, but Jesus comes and appears to them and commissions them. Then the Holy Spirit falls on them and several days later on the Feast of Pentecost. And suddenly, when God says, go out into the crowds and risk all of your reputation, risk even your life, they say yes and they go and they preach. You see Barnabas saying yes when he's asked to go ahead and, and take on the responsibility of going to the most fearsome force opposing the Christian movement at that time, Saul, who would become Paul. He says yes. You see, Peter, who was very much set in his ways in terms of his own Jewish traditions, and God saying to him, Peter, I want you to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he's a bit hesitant until the sheet comes down. And God says to him, take and eat. And he says, I don't touch unclean things. And here's this wonderful pro proclamation. Aren't you glad God said this? Nothing that I say is clean is unclean. Once I've cleaned it up, it's clean, take and eat. And so we have this kind of incredible understanding of the apostles and the disciples and the people of the Church of Acts responding aggressively to any call that God brings. And I've been contemplating, why did that occur? What was it that was in them that the Holy Spirit lit a fire and nurtured through them so that they could say the yes every time the command came? Because you see, I think for me personally, in this journey that I'm on, and on the journey that we're on together here at Lake Avenue, it is critical that when the Spirit says, go, we go. Without any yes but, yes if, yes when. That our yes is yes. That we go when He calls. And so what was it in the disciples that basically caused them to have that kind of a response? 
And the Lord's taken me back over these last several weeks as I've been listening to Greg to Psalm 27 as one of these rich places that these disciples would have known. This is one of the hymns they would have sung in terms of their worship. They would have sung Psalm 27. It was very familiar to them in terms of their rabbinical training and their teaching and their meditation upon uh, the, the, uh, the Torah. They would have been deeply invested taking the Psalms and enlightening the Torah, the five books of the law, so that they would be able to know the mind of God and understand the will of God and then be prepared to do the purposes of God without reservation or hesitation. And so there are some major themes that keep reoccurring here, and they're outlined in your your bulletin for you, but let me just give you another perspective on them. And you'll hear these over and over again. It's kind of like a symphony. In terms of an overture, and I, I have a background in, in percussion, I played in a stage band, I played in a, a concert orchestra, and so this idea of the overture was always very important. When we had a major presentation, an operatic presentation, or some major uh, work, a piece of work, there was always an overture up front where each of the major themes that were going to be reiterated throughout the presentation would be introduced. And then there was a wrap-up at the end where these themes would all then be pulled together. Here are the five major themes that you need to listen for as we think about how Psalm 27 informs you and me to be ready to say yes the moment God speaks. The first of these themes is this. They knew who was calling them to say yes. The second theme, they knew what they were being called to so that they could say yes. Third, they knew what it would cost and what it would take to say yes, to follow that call. Fourth, they knew they were not alone in saying yes to the call. And finally, fifth, they knew what the end result would be if they said yes to the call. The first one you find in Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? How many people do we have here who have served in the military in some capacity? Can I see your hands way up? Look around and let's say thank you to those people for serving our country. If there's anything we know about freedom, is that freedom is never free. It costs to be a free people. And so in my own experience, the last several years, I've had the privilege of being a civilian staff officer for the U.S. Coast Guard, working with people in the military chain of command. And one of the things I've discovered is that if you want to say, people to say yes quickly to the commands that are given, they have to have absolute confidence in the one issuing the command. If you trust your leader, if you believe in your leader, when they say go, you go. And when they say stop, you stop. Does that sound like the New Testament church? There were many times when the church was told to go and they went. There were a few times when the church was told to stop. And they stopped in an instant. Remember that portion in Acts where it says the Holy Spirit prevented us? And so we turned aside and went a different direction under the leadership. And so this understanding that the disciples had of who the one was that was calling them, and they had absolute confidence in him. First of all, they had absolute confidence because of his sense of imminence. going to throw a couple of pieces of theological construct at you. We believe that the nature of our God is, is somewhat complex, that he's both imminent and transcendent. And so in his imminence, they had gotten to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 says that he being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. They knew God high and lifted up, the transcendent one. But they had come to know him as the imminent one, the one who was there with them. And because of Pentecost, not only there with them, but now ever-present in them, that his spirit took up residence in them. They knew that the God of the universe was willing to come to a barn and be born in a manger in order to identify with the people that he would come to serve and save and ultimately as King of kings and Lord of lords lead into eternity. Aren't you glad that the King of kings and the Lord of lords was humble enough to come and visit your barn? Think about it. There isn't one of us who is worthy to receive the king. Not one of us. It says even our righteousness is like a, like a, a stack of dirty diapers. That's the Dave Garrison version of that scripture. All of our righteousness is nothing more than just a pile of dirty diapers. God came and he was willing to enter into our manger with all of the smell and the odor and the decay. He was willing to be born there to identify with us, to become imminent, to be the God who not only is there, but is here. The God big enough to rule the mighty universe, but small enough to live within our hearts. And the disciples knew that they knew whom they knew. I love the Apostle Paul's statement, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And so they had this understanding of the imminent God who was going to be with them in every foxhole. Where could they go? To the highest heights? Guess what? The imminent Savior, King of Kings, was with them. If they descended to the lowest depths, wherever the mission that they were saying yes to would take them, if they went to the deepest depths, guess what? He was there with them. Now, I'm also a British subject. I'm an American by choice, uh, but I was born a British subject. And one of the things that has bothered me about evangelicalism, because I was raised Episcopalian Anglican. Uh, we had uh, very high services with incense and antiphonal choirs. and We went to church twice a year, whether we needed to or not, on Christmas and Easter. Our Episcopal priest would say to us at Easter time, I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas because I'm sure I won't see you again until then. And he was right. I mean, that was the nature of who we were. And when I came into evangelicalism and came to grasp this imminent Christ, one of the things that I felt was lost was the understanding of the transcendent God who is represented in the imminent Christ. Now, as a British subject, if I were to walk up to Queen Elizabeth and stick out my hand and shake it, I wouldn't say, Hey, Betty, what's up? She's the queen. And one of the things that particularly those of us in the imminent traditions of the evangelical faith need to remember, not only is he small enough to live in our hearts, he's big enough, grand enough. He is over all and above all, and as we used to say in Virginia, in y'all. He's the God who is above everything. He's the all-powerful one. And so they knew that when they were saying yes, they knew not only were they saying yes to an ever-present Savior, they were also saying yes to a God that could call all of the resources of heaven 
to bear. In a Coast Guard rescue mission, one of the things that we're, we understand is that if we get in trouble out there, we can call in for additional support. We know that we're in touch with headquarters. And what can happen is they can send additional resources. Do you know what happens when we get in trouble, when we say yes? When we enter into a battle that's bigger than we can possibly handle, Jesus stands. And you know what happens when the king stands? All of heaven stands with him. You stand to your feet. You stand to your feet. And Jesus then marshals the forces of heaven to take on every cause, to provide every resource needed. And so these disciples could imminently say yes, immediately say yes, because they believed in an imminent God who was also the transcendent one, the all-powerful one, small enough to live in their hearts, but big enough to rule the mighty universe. The second thing they knew was what they were being called to. One of the things that I love is a portion of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is brought into the presence of God. There's political turmoil going on. King Uzziah has died. And it says at the beginning of chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and lifted up, train filling the temple, the, the seraphims uh, going back and forth, talking about the holiness of God, the doorposts shaking, incense. And, and what happens in that particular moment is that, uh, that the prophet is convicted of how much of a barn he's been living in. And the source of the stench was his own lips. Boy, we live in an age, ladies and gentlemen, where one of Satan's greatest tools to destroy the church is that we don't guard our mouths. We use our lips to defame our brothers and sisters. None of that was going on in the New Testament church. They stopped that in a hurry. And so Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And God sends an angel, you know the story, to the altar and takes a, a coal from off the altar of sacrifice and touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, with this you are cleansed. And then, having solved that problem, Isaiah hears God say, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I think in that moment you can see this prophet saying, hey, here am I. Right here, I'm ready to go. And God says, appreciate the enthusiasm. But let me tell you what you're getting into. That's what the rest of chapter 6 does. It says, you're going to go to a people, you're going to preach your heart out for the rest of your life, and not one person's going to respond. Whoa, tough duty. And uh, he listens to that for a while, and he says, well, God, how long is that going to last? And he said, way beyond your lifetime. The stump will be cut down. There won't be an ear left to hear. The cities will be burned in destruction. But here's the promise. If you're faithful, a little branch will spring out of the stump. And out of that branch, the branch of Jesse, will come the ultimate Savior of the world. And from Isaiah's cleansed lips come some of the greatest declarations, prophetic utterances of the coming Messiah. These disciples knew not only who was calling them, but what they were being called to. They were being called to spiritual warfare. Look at some of those verses. This theme repeats itself throughout Psalm 27, where there's great joy and great celebration in terms of the nature of who God is, but there's also this continuous repeating of the theme, the bum-bum-bum-bum, bum-bum-bum-bum, over and over again, that says, remember, this is a battle. 
You're being called to arms. And this battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And as a result, then, the instruments, the tools of our warfare are not carnal. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We will remember that it's not by might, nor by power. That it's not by Saul's armor, but by the God over Saul's armor. By my spirit, says the Lord, that these things will be accomplished. One of the things I think we have to realize if we're going to appropriate Greg's challenge here at this church is to understand that we're going into a spiritual battle, one that will be profound in terms of its impact on the world, that we're wrestling not against fresh and blood. Matter of fact, one of the powerful images in the New Testament is the idea that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. You ever think about that? And again, from a military perspective, that means we're going to march against the gates. The gates don't march against us. Gates aren't coming toward us. We're going to actually go in. Jesus did that. Remember what it says, that after he died on the cross, he descended into hell and led captivity captive? That we're called to a spiritual battle. And as a result, we need to understand that the weapons of warfare that are needed have to be spiritual weapons, the whole armor of God the presence and power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And the disciples understood that, that when they went to battle, it wasn't against a Herod, it wasn't against a Sanhedrin, it was really against spiritual powers, wickedness in high places. And they knew that their armor needed to be the spiritual armor, the whole armor of God. As a part of that preparation, this third particular understanding was that they were equipped for that kind of a battle. Because when they basically focus their attention, one of the things in, in terms of strategic deployment of, of forces is to get them focused on the ultimate objective. And I love this scripture that says, One thing, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What David was saying and what these New Testament disciples understood and what you and I need to understand if we're going to be able to say yes when God calls is that we need always God's perspective on the battle we're in. That we need to understand that God's in the business of giving beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's the call. And so one of the things David did every morning was he came before the Lord in worship to behold the beauty of the Lord, to understand that no matter how dire the battle looked, no matter how big the mess was that they were being called to address, that Jesus Christ is the one who will bring beauty for ashes. I'm so thankful that the people that took me in off the street when I was a young runaway off the streets of northern Canada could see beyond the ashes beyond all of the street mess and slop and pain and sin and could see the diamond in the rough. We're not going to be very engaged. We're not going to be quick to say yes. If every time we look at the world we say, oh my God, what a mess that is. We need to see the diamond in the rough. I love the story of the young lad that was given a shovel to go clean out a barn. 
And he went out there and for three hours he whistled and jumped up and down and was joyful. And finally the owner of the barn came out and said, Son, I don't understand why you're so happy. And he said, Sir, with all of this, and you know what the this is, right? With all of this, there just has to be a pony in there somewhere. Don't you love that? That's the divine perspective that God has given us. Despite all of this, guess what? There's a king of kings and a lord of lords in there. As a matter of fact, to keep the metaphor clean, there's a lamb in there, slain from the foundation of time, that takes all things and makes them new. Old things become new. Old things pass away. And so that beauty for ashes. But the other dimension is that we need to be prepared to know what we know. That I might inquire in his temple. One of our challenges at Maranatha High School is to raise up a new generation of young people who not only know who they know, but know what they should know about who they know. To help them understand the fundamental foundations upon which their life and their faith and their future is based. As a matter of fact, the New Testament church, as persecution would intensify, was so intense about this that they would require all new converts to the Christian faith to go through a comprehensive alpha-like curriculum called the Didache, the teachings of the Twelve. They wanted them to know what they were going to believe because they feared, and you see this mentioned in the New Testament scripture, that if they then were unprepared in terms of not only knowing who they believed but what they believed, they might renounce their faith. And the fear was that if they renounced their faith because they were uninformed about what their faith anchored them to, that then there wouldn't be any opportunity for them to be saved because they would have rejected the one source of their salvation. And so these disciples know what they know. If we're going to go into a world, not only do we need to know, need to know who we know, but we need to know what we know. There's a wonderful old saying that says, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Don't you love that? A man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. But a man with an experience who can explain his experience anchored to the revelation of Scripture is undefeatable. Is a person that can stand in the midst of any battle. And Paul said, I know whom I have believed. But Paul also spent most of his New Testament writings helping the New Testament church understood what they believe. That's what we need to do here at Lake Avenue. And that's what Greg and the team are doing with us, is to help us be grounded in those essentials of the faith. The fourth theme that repeats itself throughout this 27th Psalm is this idea that not only do we know who is calling us, and not only do we know that we're being called to a spiritual battle, and not only do we know that essentially the weaponry that's needed has to be spiritual weaponry, that, uh, and we are preparing ourselves in terms of being able to see things in their completed form, to see the diamond in the rough, and knowing what we believe so that we can see the diamond in the rough. We also know that we're called to a relationship. Ultimately, it's the band of brothers the band of sisters things, that help military troops be successful, that they know they've got each other's back, that you can count on the person next to you. And so I love this portion of Scripture beginning in verse 7 that talks about the relational connection, that they had, these New Testament disciples, an experience like Isaiah. They'd had a divine, direct encounter with God. 
And they knew that even though they'd been born in a barn, they were born again by the love of the one who would visit the barn and set them free. And so they knew that they knew and they could say yes. But they also knew that they were called into a community of believers, that the battle was not only the Lord's, and they could trust in him because they were connected to him inextricably, that they had been redeemed and they knew it. But they also know that it was a we thing as well as a he thing. This battle that we're entering into is a we thing as well as a he thing. We depend on the he, Jesus, but he works through the we, the community of faith and fellowship together, working together. You know that you know. For me, I grew up in a very difficult home situation. My dad was an alcoholic, and my mom had a lot of severe mental problems and was institutionalized several times. And at the age of 10, my dad abandoned us. And for the next three years, uh, life got very, very difficult. My mom turned all of her anger toward my dad on me. And at age 13, I came home from my first couple of weeks in the ninth grade. This is one of the reasons I have such a heart for high school kids. I know how critical how critical this age period is in terms of what will happen to you and the scar tissue that you can carry the rest of your life. And I came home and my clothes were on the front lawn. The door was locked. And my mother said, you're no good. You're turn out like your old man. You're a failure. You're stupid. You're not worth anything. I can still hear the tape. It's amazing. Still hear the words. I never would have stayed with your father had you not been born. If it hadn't been for you, I'd have left your father years ago, and she wouldn't let me back in the house. And so I picked up my clothes and moved to the streets. And just a few weeks later, a Christian family found me and took me into their home. And I lived with them for the next five years. And even though I had a very difficult time in high school and flunked out of high school, essentially they loved on me. And about a year and a half in, I was in a deep set sense of depression. And I thought, you know, nobody cares about me. And and my mom and dad didn't want me. I think I'll just disappear into the, into the northern Ontario bush and, and never come back. And Marion, uh, Jim and Marion Pointer, the couple that took me in, by the way, they took in over 60, 60, 60 young men and women off the streets. They had four children of their own. All but one of us came to faith. Half of us are in some kind of vocational Christian work today. We were the people in the barns that in the incarnational effort of Christ, they went into those barns to find us and brought us out and invested in our lives. And late that night, Marion had gone off to work because they weren't making enough money as song evangelists and pastoring a small church. So Marion worked 11 at night till 7 in the morning to keep them in the ministry. She was a nurse's aide. And late that night, Jim sensed that there was something in my spirit that was going wrong. And he said to me, David, are you all right? And I'm a tough street kid, okay? taking care of myself, been through a lot, but I broke down and cried like a baby. And I said, Jim, nobody cares about me. Even my mother threw me out. And Jim went over and got his Bible and opened it up and turned to Psalm 27, and guess what verse he read? David, <laughs> when your mother and father forsake you, then the Lord will take you up. And in a moment didn't take all 25 verses of just as I am without one plea or any kind of scary story that if I didn't accept Jesus as my Savior, I'd be dispatched into a Christless eternity. It was just that simple witness. God himself 
whispering, David, it's true. It's true. When your mother and your father abandon you, I was there. I'm so glad Jim and Marion heard the Moses call. I've seen the afflictions of Dave Gyertsen. I've heard his cry by reason of his cruel taskmasters. And I'm come down to deliver him. And Jim and Marion, I'm sending you. And you know what Jim and Marion said? Yes! And they came and got me. And in their home, I learned that God so loved little Dave Gyertsen that he gave his only begotten son that if I would believe in him, I would not perish but have everlasting life. Have you had that kind of an experience? Do you know that you know that you're the redeemed of the Lord? You can say so. And if you know that, noblesse oblige, as it says during the French Revolution, you're nobility, children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but nobility obligates. And so we have a responsibility to tell those who do not yet know that when their mother and father forsakes them, then the Lord will take them up. That's our calling. And the last thing is this wonderful revolution, revelation that they understood that in the final analysis, they knew victory was guaranteed. I love an old gospel song we used to sing in a gospel quartet setting. It says, we win, we win, hallelujah, we win. We've read the back of the book, and we win. Are you ready to say yes? Understand the one you're saying yes to. Understand that it's a battle. Understand that he's ready to equip you, help you to see the beauty in the ashes. Understand that you're a part of his family, that you're in the battle with him, the he, but you're also in the battle with the we, that you know that you know. And know that in the final analysis, if we lose a few skirmishes here and there, guess what? We've read the back of the book, and we win. Father, thank you for the call. Thank you for the challenge. Thank you that you would, in your important eternal work, ask us to come alongside. We want to be more like those disciples of Acts. We're thankful that Moses finally decided to go, but he delayed, and we don't want to delay. We want to hear your voice, and then we want to say yes. And I pray that what we've shared together and explored together out of this great word, this psalm of faith that David himself had to rehearse in his own heart day in, day out as he entered the battle, that the truths of it would ring deep into our spirits so that when you say go or when you say stop, we say yes, Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen.